Okay, you can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We started this message last week, and hopefully we'll finish up to verse 6 today. Clearly, the Apostle Paul, as we saw last week, has the law in mind by the time he gets to Romans chapter 7. Uh, And it appears several times, the word appears several times throughout the chapter. And so, undoubtedly, that's his subject matter. And remember back, he made a certain uh, uh, comment all the way back in in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, when he said, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And that was such a crazy statement for him to make to his audience. First of all, he had to explain what he meant by sin no longer having dominion over him. And he does that, picking up in verse 15, through the end of chapter 6. And now in chapter 7, He picks up on that second half of that verse, verse 14, where it says, you are not under the law, but under grace. Remember, in the Jewish culture, the Jewish religion, the law was everything. They lived, died, breathed by the law of God. They just really, really had a very high view of God's law, as we should as well. Don't fall into the trap that because we're a Christian, we live in the New Testament, the church age, that somehow... The law is uh, void because Christ didn't come to void the law. He came to what? Fulfill the law. And so when you look at at chapter uh, 7 of Romans, you see over and over again certain statements that Paul makes in verse Uh, I think it's down in verse 12. He says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and Good. And then verse 14, he says something similar. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual. And then down in verse 22, he brings it up again. For I delight in the law of God. So the law isn't something that we should not delight in. The law of God is not something that we should set aside now that we're Christians. The law is holy. The law is to be respected. The law is to be exalted. And... When you violate the law, we call that what? Sin. And that's what the New Testament bears out. Sin is the transgression of God's law. If there was no law, there was no transgression of the law. And so when we look at Romans, uh, the book of Romans, remember the whole theme is justification by what? By faith. Okay, you don't become justified by God by keeping the law or by doing anything. You're justified by faith. And so in chapter 3, verse 31, Paul asks this kind of rhetorical question. He says, do we then make void the law through faith? Since we're not saved by the law, Paul's asking the question because he knew his hearers were asking the question, well, what good is the law then, Paul? Can't we just throw it out? If you're saying it doesn't save us, if you're saying we're justified not through the law but through faith, What do we do with this law of God? Can you come to God by faith? And when you do that, you don't have to worry about the law at all. I mean, thank God we're not saved by keeping the law, right? 
Think what a hassle that would be. Keeping every little jot and tittle. And so when Paul answers that question back in chapter 3, he says, no, we don't void out the law. We establish the law. So we're at a point in the book of Romans chapter 7 where Paul is interested in pointing out to us what the relationship is between the law of God and believers and Jews and whoever else, Gentiles. He wants us to know that we're not just to cast it aside. Because the law is good, the law is holy, the law is righteous, the law is honorable. The law reflects the mind and the heart of God. That's what it is. But as holy and as good, as righteous as the law is, it never will, nor has it ever justified anybody by them keeping it. And so when you look at the book of Romans, and you see this justification by faith as the, the theme, that you're saved not by keeping the law, but by faith in Christ, in the work of Christ. We went all the way back to chapter 3, and we began to unravel this justification by faith. What does he mean by this? And the first couple chapters showed us really how much we need to be justified by faith because we're so sinful. And then he gets to chapter Uh, three and four, and he has basically begins to uh, establish this doctrine of justification by faith, and then we begin to learn some of the results of justification. We had a couple messages on that. In chapter five, we learned that one of the results of our being justified by God and not by the law is that we have security, because it's God who justifies, not us. That should be a blessing. We don't save ourselves. We don't justify ourselves. God saves us. And then chapter 6, we learned that another result of being saved by God's justification through faith is that not only are we secure, but God starts a process of sanctification. He makes us holy. We're already made holy in our position before God, but God makes us holy in our practice each and every day. More and more, we we learn to live more like Christ. And then by the time we get to chapter 7, we begin to realize that there's more benefits of justification. And the benefit he points out in chapter 7 is that, you know what? For the first time in your life, if you've come to Christ, if you've been justified by faith, if you've been saved by the blood of Christ, you're free from the law. You're not held bondage to the law anymore. And so, that's a very important progression for Paul to, to make. That, hey, we're, we're sinners, we need, we need to be saved, God justifies us. Now that we're justified, what happens? Do things go on just as normal? No. Things begin to change. We begin to learn that we're, we're secure in Christ. That allows us to live a holy life. And here in chapter 7, he points out that we have liberty in Christ. Freedom from the law we've been released from the con, from the uh, from the, the the law of god and so it's it's important that we remember that that salvation is a, a process that changes people it's not something you just do and come to church and raise a hand or go to a evangelistic meeting and raise your hand and and say well that's that's done next no it's a process of transformation 
Always remember, salvation is not addition. Salvation is not you adding the church or the Bible or prayer or something else to your life. That's not going to save you. What will save you is when God has transformed your heart. He's transformed your mind. So we have peace with God because of our union with God. And now we have freedom from the law because of our union with Christ. And that's really what he's still kind of answering back in chapter 6, verse 1. He asked that question, a similar question. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? See, legalistic people have a hard time with a gracious gospel. They have a very difficult time with it. There's, there's people who are, I'm not saying they're not Christians, but they're legalists. They think somehow by keeping certain rules and regulations, that somehow that benefits your relationship with God. And when they hear someone preach a gracious gospel, it goes against everything that they believe. Because they need somebody to come along with a list of rules and say, now, now that you're a Christian, you have to do this, 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 and this. And if you do this, we're good. I wish it was that easy. It's not that easy. And so you have certain churches that will preach about certain things that are just kind of ridiculous. The length of your hair or you know, whether you wear makeup or not. Or what you wear, what you dress. I mean, all those things should honor Christ in our lives as Christians. But see, the legalist says, no, 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 no. You, you can't be a believer and, and, and have that piercing in your nose or that color in your hair or, or this or that. That's what the legalist says. And they can't point really to, you know, chapter verse a lot of times when they bring these things up. So for the most part, it's, it's legalistic. Uh, it's a legalistic mess. And what Paul is trying to get them to understand is that, you know what, you're freed from all that. In Christ, you're free. Does that mean we can just go do whatever we want? No. And that's what we're going to find out today. We're, uh, we're free to do what Christ desires us to do. Last week, we looked at the first uh, thing there, principle, the principle we found in verse 1 of Romans chapter 7. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law... And here he's not using the law in, in really even in a way that would relate to the Mosaic law. It does, because that's what they figured. But he could be talking to Gentiles and just talking about the laws in the town. All right, There's, there's no real uh, definite article there in front of law to make it the law of God. So he may be referring to that. He may just be referring to the law in general. But what he says is, understand any law whether it's God's law, whatever it is, it says the law is binding on a person, what? Only as long as he is alive or as he lives. That's the principle. The principle basically is this. Paul wants us to understand that law, any law, only applies to living people. If someone breaks the law and they die in the process of breaking the law... A police officer isn't going to write them a ticket. That'd be silly. It doesn't apply to them anymore. They're dead. They've left, left this realm and went into the next. And so he wants us to understand that we, 
we to gain victory in our Christian lives over sin, we have to wrestle with this aspect of the law in our relationship to it. And so he says, first of all, this principle is simple. It's basically that, you know what? The law applies to only those who are alive. And we kind of went into that pretty much in detail last week. And then he moved on and he gave us a picture. He gave us an illustration. He gave us an analogy of what he's trying to say. And that's in verses 2 and 3. And we began to get into this last week. So he says, let me give you an example. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. It's kind of basic. So you have a married woman. You have somebody who's married to a man. Married by law to her husband. They're both alive and they're married. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Verse 3 says, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. Now, any hearer of Paul, when he's writing this, or when he's reading this, or when they're reading this, would understand what he's saying. This, doesn't, this isn't a, a treatise on marriage and divorce, and it doesn't bring any of that minutia into it. He's just using it as an example. So don't go to this text and say, oh, here, you know, we can use this as a proof text for marriage. No, he, that's not his point. His point is simply, you know what, there's law. Let's use the law of marriage. (laughs) When a woman is married, she's married to her husband as long as he's alive. If she goes and marries another husband or sleeps with another man while he is still alive, that's what you call an adulteress, somebody who violates the law of marriage, violates the covenant of marriage. But then he goes on in verse 3. He says, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. So he just points out this picture of marriage. Like, hey, you know, it's the same thing with the law of God. And that's what he's going to point out to us in a second. But he's just getting them kind of warmed up to this. So he illustrates through the picture of marriage the point that the law is only binding on those who are alive. And then he gets to what we call the practical application in verses 4 to 5. He says, Likewise, my brothers, and what he's saying there is basically, because of what I just told you, you know, hence, as a result of, wherefore, whatever your your version says, but what he's saying is based on what I just explained to you in verses 1 through 3, here's what I want you to understand based on the principle that the law only applies to the people who are alive, and I gave you a picture of marriage, based on that, he says, likewise, my brothers. And so he's kind of using that endearing term. He wants them to know that he's sharing truth with them. A lot of times we do that when when we have something hard to say to somebody. What do we say? Brother, you know I love you, but, right? Her sister, you know, we, we do that. And Paul is doing just that. And so he says, likewise, brothers, look at what he says next. You also have died to the law. 
So remember, this, this marriage of picture of the picture of marriage is in your in their mind. And so then he brings up, well, remember, you, brothers, have died to the law. In the original language, it's a little more graphic. Brothers, you were put to death. You could even say, brothers, you were put to death violently. <laughs> like you were dead, dead, dead. It's in the aorist tense, which reminds us that there's, there's, there's something that happened at a point in time back here, but it still has ongoing ramifications. That's the idea. And so you're saying, okay, I get the idea that, you know, a husband, if he dies, the woman is free from that law of marriage. How does this relate to us? He says, you also have died to the law. You might say, well, where do you get that? Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. We went through this, but just to remind you, chapter 3, chapter 6, verse 3, sorry, chapter 6, verse 3. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ, so who's he speaking of? Christians, right? He's talking to people who've had a transformation in their life. They've been saved by the glorious work of Christ on the cross. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized, what? Into his death. Into his death. And that we not only died with him, it says, but we were buried, therefore, with him by in the, in, baptism into death. That's how dead we were. You don't bury somebody who's not dead. Well, some people do, but it's not a good thing to do. It doesn't have the best interest of those being buried at heart, I guess you could say. So he points out here that, you know what, as Christians, we died with Christ, positionally, on the cross. And what he wants us to understand, look at verse 4, he says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, or, or kind of for the reason of, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The question you ask yourself is this, could Jesus Christ have raised from the dead if he didn't die? Kind of a ridiculous question, right? No. Okay, so this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, so we died with Christ, but it doesn't end there. We don't just you know, lay in the, the dirt the rest of the time. We're not dead. Now, obviously, we're talking spiritually, not physically. But the idea is that until we die, we can't be raised. And that's what he says, that we might walk in the newness of life. So why did we have to die this violent death with Christ? And we went into all this, and you can look at the, the, the mystical union that we have with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. We talked about all that. We're not going to get into that this morning. But that's a reality that the Bible teaches. We became one with Christ. Well, where was it? It was on Calvary. And so we're united with Christ, we die with Christ, we're raised with Christ, and now we live a new life in the newness of life just as Christ lived his life. Now, the thing you have to understand about the law is that before you came to Christ, 
Could the law save you? No. Okay? No. There was no way that the law or you keeping the law could save you. It had no ability to save you. It had no ability to redeem you. As a matter of fact, the Bible clearly says that by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be what? Justified. It doesn't stutter. It doesn't stammer. It doesn't have a gray area. It says by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. So if you're trying to justify yourself, if you're trying to reach salvation by doing certain deeds of the law, guess what? It's not going to work out. Not a good idea. Before you were saved, the law had no ability to redeem you. All it does, it points out our sinfulness. It doesn't save us, it actually condemns us. That's the reality. That's the purpose of the law. That's all it could do. It condemns us. That's why God gave the law. To show us our inability to keep it. But now stop and think. Now that you're saved, now that you're in Christ, you're a new creature in Christ, you're walking in this newness of life with Christ, you need to understand the law not only cannot redeem you, but now because you are in Christ, it doesn't even condemn you. (laughs) It doesn't even condemn you. The Bible says there's no, what? Condemnation for those that are in Christ, Paul points out in Philippians. So you could, literally, you could take God's law and you could start reading it and you could become very depressed. Because there's a lot of things in there I'm sure you don't do. There's a lot of things in there I don't do. And boy, it could just weigh heavy on our heart. Boy, we could just be condemned. That's why we need to be freed from the law. And that's what Christ did. And because all of the law could demand from us was death. We looked at that, right? The wages of sin is what? Death. He that sins, the Bible says, the soul shall die. God told Adam in the garden, you know what? If you break this law, you will die. And all the law can demand of us is death. And so it happened that we died. Now stop and think, follow this with me. Technically, if someone were to go out in society and murder five people, they get caught. And it's in another state. I don't think we have the death penalty now. It's in another state that practiced Florida. I think they got the death penalty. And they're going to put this man to death because he was found guilty through a court of law. And they take him in and they strap him in the electric chair. And they pump some voltage through his body till he's dead. And that individual breathes his last. And he's dead. And on the way to the morgue, He's declared dead by a doctor on the way to the morgue. They put him in the morgue. They go to get him out, and he's alive. Guess what? The law has no way of following up. If he was raised from the dead, 
This is the key thing. He paid the penalty. He died. You can't bring him back into a court of law. Well, wait, no, he killed. Hey, he died. Well, he's alive now. Hey, nothing we can do. He was declared dead. See, this is where we're at. This is who we are. That's what we need to understand. That the penalty was paid by Christ. And so in Christ, when we're joined with Christ, we die. The law cannot redeem us any longer. Never could. But now, not only don't we have to worry about getting saved by the law, now we don't even have to worry about being condemned by the law because it won't apply to us. But before we came to Christ, the law couldn't redeem you. It could only condemn you. And so you're under its bondage. And that's what Paul is pointing out here, that we're released from that. Now, look at what he says here in verse 4. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law, or you were put to death. Interesting verb construction here, just to let you know. It's a, it's a passive verb, which means you didn't kill yourself. <laughs> this isn't something you did to yourself. You couldn't do that. God did it. It was God's plan all along for your salvation. It was God who carried it out. It was God who redeemed you. It was God who put you in Christ. It's all the work of God when it comes to salvation. And when you died... The law no longer had authority over you because you died in Christ. And so we're not under the law's condemnation anymore. We're released from that. And you say, well, how does this happen? He goes on in verse 4 and he tells us it's through the body of Christ. Through the body of Christ. What does he mean? He means by offering the body of Christ at the crucifixion, by being crucified with Christ, Jesus in death satisfied the law because he died the death that the law demanded. He did it. He died on that cross. He paid the penalty for our sin in full. And as a result of that, he freed us from the law. That's why if you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21... You see very clearly there, he says, For our sake, he made him, God made him, God made Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, to be sin who knew no sin. Why did he do that? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He redeemed us from the law by his death. God did this through Christ for us. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it tells us this, Christ redeemed us, Galatians 3, 13, redeemed us from the curse of the law, from its condemning power, by becoming a curse, what? For us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Why did he do that? Why did he hang on a tree? Why did he hang on a cross? 
so that we could be delivered from the curse of the law. That's the purpose. That's the reason there. He became a, a curse for us. Galatians 2, 19 to 20 says this, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. How did this happen? He goes on and he says, verse 20, I have been crucified, what's Paul say? With who? With Christ. And then he goes on, he says, it's no longer I who live. Remember we said there's no old you left. You were dead, you're buried. And that's why Paul's saying, it's not me who lives, it's not the I who lives, but Christ lives in me or through me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we were put to death to the law, but we came alive in Christ. We went over that in chapter 6. But look at where he carries this 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 application here in, in verse 4, because it's kind of interesting. Back to Romans 7. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you've also died to the law through the body of Christ. Just like Christ died, you died. You died with him. And then he applies it here. So that you may belong to another. Or you may marry another. What's he saying here? You know what he's saying? In a nutshell, he's saying, when you are saved, you you don't have the same relationship going on. It's totally different. Salvation is a complete change of relationship. You no longer have the first husband you had. He died. You're no longer under the bondage of the law. And now... Because you died, you're free to marry Christ. You have a new relationship with Christ. See, that's, that's what salvation is all about. If we didn't die, then we, we couldn't spiritually marry Christ. This is what he's pointing out. And you see in Ephesians 5 and other places where marriage is, is a picture, the bride and the groom, it's pictured as the church in Christ. Right? You see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where we are an espoused wife having a marriage consummated to Christ in the future, in glory. So we're called to be married to another and it tells us who it is. You say, well, who are we married to? What's it say? It says, you may belong to another or married to another, at the end of verse 4, to him who has been, what? Excuse me, raised from the dead. Who was raised from the dead? Christ. We're not only identified in union with Christ. We're not only identified with his death in the past and his resurrection. But we're also identified in union with a living Savior. And that's kind of an important point. He says, for the one who has been raised from the dead. 
has the idea something happened here, but you know what? It has ongoing. Today, it's, it's a realistic thing that's still going on. Now, in chapter 6, verse 9, look at this verse. We'll just jump back there real quick. Chapter 6, verse 9, because it really gives us a little insight into this. It says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, what's it say? Will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And you say, well, what's your point? The point is this. We will never lose our current husband. Our relationship, our marriage with Christ is secure in Him. There's nothing that can break that. And so we died in Christ by this mysterious miracle of our union with Christ. And we were raised with Him by grace through faith. And now we walk in the newness of life because salvation is a total transformation. It's something that God does in our lives. He transforms us. He makes us a new person. Old things have fallen away. Behold, all things have become new. But it's important that we understand that Christ died. He's not going to die again. Therefore, if we're married to Christ, he will never not be our husband. He will never not be our husband. Savior. We will always have that relationship with him, and it speaks directly to our eternal security in Christ. For the life of me, I don't understand how Christians who do not believe in the perseverance of the saints and eternal security, how they function. How could you have any peace if, if your salvation wasn't secure, if your salvation wasn't eternal? If it was up to you to somehow keep a bunch of rules and regulations and maybe if you did it good enough, God would eventually save you ultimately and finally and completely. What a glorious thing it is to know that that Christ secured our salvation at the cross. It's done. It's over. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to sit in bed with our eyes open late at night going, oh man, what if Christ goes, I don't know if I'm a sick Christian or not. We don't have to do that because we are secure in Christ. Let me say this. I think that there are Christians who do that. There are Christians who worry. There are Christians who wonder. The Bible does even indicate that we should mark out times where we examine our faith, right? To make sure that we're in the faith. So that's not all bad. I'm not saying we just lay back in the armchairs of grace and say, yeah, I'll just let go and let God, whatever, I'm just on for the ride. No. Okay, there's there's a picture of our security in Christ. Remember, we're secure in Christ, chapter 5. Why? Because, and then he, as a result of that security, he produces sanctification, he produces holiness in our lives, chapter 6. And then finally, we have this freedom from the law in chapter 7. We're free from a works righteousness. We don't have to work for our salvation from trying to earn it. And the reason we are is because Christ died, was buried, and was risen from the dead. And he will no longer die. Death has no dominion over him. 
And so when we think about that, that relates directly to us as well. And so when you apply it, it's, it's a wonderful application. Well, th- fourthly here, let's look at the, the purpose of this. Why is this happening? And he says here in the end of verse 4, he gives the, the reason. Why does God do this? Why does God save us? Why does God go through all this work? What's he say? In order that we may, what? Bear fruit for God. That's the purpose. That's why God saved you. Now, please understand, he's not commanding us here to bear fruit. This isn't a command construction. He's not saying, oh, now you're a Christian. You, 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 know, you better get out there and work hard and bear fruit. No, he's not saying that. It's not a command. It's a statement of fact. <laughs> he's simply saying, you know what? Because this happened, this transformation happened, you've been raised from the dead, all this stuff, you're a new Christian, new follower of Christ. Because of that, you know what? You're going to see fruit in your life. You're going to see fruit in your life. You know, there's no such thing as a Christian who has no fruit. There's no such thing. There's a lot of people who profess themselves Christians who have no fruit. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who have no fruit. They live the same life they lived before they, quote, came to Christ or raised their hand or signed a card or whatever they did. But if you look at their life, there's no change. There's no change, no Jesus. No Jesus, no change. Very simple. This is what Paul wants them to understand. Because, see, a lot of his readers came out of a culture, out of Judaism, where, you know what, you had to do this, you had to do that, and if you did this, you got certain accolades, and boy, if you wore certain clothes, all. And, and Paul's saying, no, set all that aside. The fruit that comes out of your life after you are saved is something that God does through you. See, because of our transformed life, because of our salvation in Christ, we will see, we will bear fruit to God. It goes all the way back to the question at the beginning of chapter 6 there. When you preach this kind of message, grace, salvation, and you ask people to come to Christ by grace through faith, you don't have to do anything to earn it. It's a free gift by God. You just take it. You're under grace. It goes right back to chapter, or chapter 6, verse 1. Well, if that's how it works, then why not just sin it up? <laughs> So that there can be more grace. See, he's, he's building an argument against that still. He's saying, no, that won't happen. You'll bear fruit as a Christian. You'll walk in holiness as a Christian. Chapter 7 says, if you're truly married to Jesus Christ, you will bring forth fruit unto God. You won't just lay back and say, yeah, all my sins are forgiven, so I'm going to go live like the devil. You won't have that attitude. Hodge, one of the theologians, wrote this, the only evidence of union with Christ is bringing forth fruit onto God. How do you know? How do I know if you're a Christian? How do you know if I'm a Christian? You know, we can't put you in a little machine and x-ray your heart and say, yep, there's Jesus. He's down. Yep, he's there. He's a Christian. No. You know, after you become a Christian, a C doesn't magically appear on your forehead. You know, we don't know. 
There's a lot of people who say they're Christians. How will you know? The Bible says you'll know them by their what? By their fruit. By their fruit. And it's something that will happen as a result of the Spirit. MacArthur summarizes it this way. When you talk about fruit, I I like how he puts this. He says, basically, you can look at two things, attitude and action. What's attitude? Galatians 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. What's that relate to? That relates to our attitude. When someone comes to Christ, you'll see a change in their attitude. You'll see some of those of, of that fruit. And by the way, it's not the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. I've mentioned this before, but we have a lot of people that still say, oh, you know, the, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy. You know, I think I'll take joy today. I'm going to work on joy. No, it's either you have them all or you don't have any of them. You can't pick and choose because it's a total transformation. That's the attitude aspect of it. Well, what about the action he goes over to Hebrews chapter 13. He says, The fruit of your lips praise on to God. Or Philippians 4, he mentions, The fruit of a loving heart, a gift sent to the Apostle Paul. See, Philippians talks about the fruit of righteousness. Any righteous act, any act that glorifies God is fruit. Now, if you're doing something for God and you're just looking for a pat on the back, and they give you pats on the back, well, guess what? That's all the fruit you're going to see. (laughs) That's all the reward you're going to get. That's it. Oh, good job. Oh, thank you very much. When you get to heaven, well, what about all this stuff I did? Well, no, didn't they say thank you? Didn't they acknowledge you? Yeah, that's it. No reward. See, that's why we don't want to go around with false motives serving Christ. We don't want to do it with a sincere heart. And when Christ transforms your life and you are dead to the law and you become alive to God, it's not just something that happened way back here. It has a a current understanding that things are still going on. There's a present reality to your salvation. And that present reality produces fruit through the Spirit of God. I mean, Jesus uses this terminology a lot. We don't need to go into all it, right? He calls himself the vine. We're the what? The branches. Okay? And he carries that whole illustration out there. So salvation has a product. The product isn't the attitude of, well, I'm just going to go do whatever I want now that I'm saved. All my sins are forgiven. I'm just going to go be more sinful. See, thinking you're going to get forgiven or forgiveness for everything you do personally is wrong. You're not going to get forgiven. You're not going to get salvation for that but it's because of something that was done for you. It's a good illustration when someone says, well, you know, all the salvation, what's it mean to be saved anyway? You know, two words, do and done. (laughs) Some people say, well, you know, you're, you're a Christian now. What's that mean? It means 
Basically, I'm trusting in what was done on the cross for me. Before, as a Catholic, I was trusting in what I did, what I do every day. I went to Mass, I went to forgiveness for confession, did all these things. And I was trusting that somehow God would look favorably on me because of my activities. That would never save anyone. So think of that, do and done. Christ, what Christ has done for us, and what we do has little or no effect before our salvation in Christ. So the product of true salvation is always holiness. It's always fruitfulness. And so in verse 5, he says this, For while we were living in the flesh, while we were living in the flesh, he rattles off a couple things. Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So once you're saved, you should bear fruit for God. But before you're saved, that's what he says, for while we were in living in the flesh, there's a couple ways that you can understand that, but then he lists off flesh, sin, law, death, right there, they're all connected. They all talk about our unregenerate self, our unsaved self, our fallenness, And notice when he says there in verse 5, while we were living in the flesh. In the flesh. Well, you can understand flesh in a couple ways. Flesh can be understood physically. Right? Paul uses it a couple times then. But it's important to understand when Paul uses flesh, or when the Bible, even in general, uses flesh to relate to the physical characteristic of somebody, it doesn't have anything evil to do with it. There's no evil uh, connotation there. There's no evil understanding. It's just a word. When it's used physically, there's nothing bad about the word flesh. I mean, we think as Christians, flesh, that means bad. Well, not always. If you think about it, for the word was what? Made flesh. Christ was made flesh. John 1.14. So if that word meant evil, we have a real problem. Because <laughs> Christ definitely wasn't evil. So the word flesh doesn't always mean something evil when it's relating to the physicality of something. John, uh, 1 John 4.2 says that anyone who doesn't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is what? It's not of God. See, that's some of the religious beliefs of, the, of the, the day in which Christ lived. Some of these people had a real problem. Well, wait, you're God and you have a fleshly body? We believe the body to be evil. And they were all mixed up that way. The body's not evil. God created the body. Last time I checked, he said it was good. So when it relates to the physicality of something, it doesn't necessarily mean it's evil. Secondly, when it's used ethically or morally, that word, and you find it used over and over and over again, if you look at Romans chapter 8, and when we get there, you'll see this word a lot, flesh. I think it's used in in, in verse um, 4. It's used in verse 5, 6, 7. It's used all throughout the chapter of 8. 
And for the most part, everywhere there, it's relating to an ethical or moral relationship kind of a, a thing. It's, that's what it's talking about, the flesh. And, and when it relates to it that way, it, it's always evil. <laughs> so if it's talking about the physical body, it's just a word. But if it's relating to something moral or ethical, we see in Scripture that it definitely has some evil trappings to it. In Galatians chapter 5, you see it four times there. In Ephesians 2, you see it a couple times, that word that has the evil kind of connotation with it. It's relating to it morally. It's speaking of man's unredeemed humanness. It's speaking of someone outside of Christ. And so, back to Romans 7, he says there, For while we were living in the flesh, what's he saying? When we were unredeemed, when our being was unsaved, we were just engulfed in the flesh. And notice, he points out, we were living in the flesh. It's past tense. I don't know about you, but I'm no longer in the flesh. As a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're no longer in the flesh. Well, wait a minute, i got a body. Remember what I said. It's not relating to the body. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Or chapter 8, verse 4, sorry. Chapter 8, verse 4. Look at what he says here. Paul says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not, what? According to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We don't walk according to the flesh. We're not in the flesh as Christians. That's what the transformation is all about. That's why we're changed. That's why there's fruit. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. Well, guess what? We already died in Christ. We're not going there again. So that's not us. But to set the mind of the, on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile toward God. Or an enemy of God is the idea. We sing the song, I am a friend of God. Well, that wasn't always the case. At one point, we were an enemy of God until he transformed us and he saved us. He continues in verse 7, he says, For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. And then he says this, Those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. So guess what? If that's relating to our bodies, (laughs) none of us can please God. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about someone who is outside of Christ. Someone who is still in their unredeemed state. He's talking about an unregenerate person. No matter how hard they try, no matter how good they live, it makes no difference. They're not going to please God. They may please their wives. They may please the society they live in. They may please their kids. They're not going to please God. 
You're in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's what the Bible says. And the Spirit of God dwells in every Christian. Don't believe the lie that says, oh, when you become a Christian, then you've got to do some extra work to get the Spirit. No. That's the whole charismatic maniacs that believe that. And it's wrong. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling within him, or you're not a Christian. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. It's that simple. And if Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin. The Spirit of life because of righteousness. When you look at, at Romans chapter 7, verse 5, unregenerate people are people in the flesh. We're not, as Christians, in the flesh. You say, well, why am I still having issues with sin? Right? I mean, if you're saying I'm not in the flesh, why do I still deal with this? And we've gone over that before, but just to remind you that you're not in the flesh, but the flesh is in you. (laughs) It no longer really engulfs you. It no longer really has you as its captive because of our sermon title. We've been released from that whole, whole scene. You're no longer its slave. You've been freed from the bondage that it had on you. We don't have to, for the first time in our lives as believers, we don't have to yield to sin. We have a choice. God provides a way out. He's always faithful to do that, the Word of God says. Sometimes we pick it, sometimes we don't. Galatians 5 says just that. Walk not after the flesh, but after the what? After the Spirit. See, we may do fleshly things because the flesh is in us. But we're not in the flesh. We have to get that right. That's a, someone who is outside of Christ. That's designated toward them. We're new creation. We're regenerate. We're redeemed. Positionally, before God, we're holy, we're pure, we're undefiled. When we get to Romans 8, we'll see that Paul still has his unredeemed self to deal with. The humanness, there's still touches of that there. But for the first time, we can not listen to it. We can listen to the Spirit rather than the flesh. And so he points that out there in verse 5. He says, while we're living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. That simply means, you know what? If there wasn't a law, then we wouldn't be tempted to break the law. (laughs) So the law really aroused the sin within us. And we died to that which held us captive so that, or at the end of verse 5 there, excuse me, we're at work in our members to bear fruit uh, for death. So when we were in the flesh, we couldn't do anything but wrong. But look at what he says. He finally gives us the final product here in verse 6. He says, but now we are released from the law because of the work of Christ. We're released from the law having died to that which held us captive. When we died to Christ, with Christ, we died to the law. You can't hold a dead person captive. 
But he says this. Look at what he says at the end of verse 6. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the code or the law. When you stop and think about it, as a Christian, as you serve Christ, I hope and pray that it's a little different for you now than it was before you were a Christian. I know that when I was in the church, in the Catholic church, and altar boy and the whole thing, you know, I mean, there was no joy in doing that stuff. It was out of fear for God that I did it. Like, man, if I don't do this, I'm going to be in trouble. If I don't go to communion, if I don't go to mass, if I don't help out the altar boy thing, if I don't do this, do that. But it was all religiosity. I never thought for a minute, boy, if I don't read my Bible, God might not be pleased. Never thought that. Never thought for a moment, boy, if I sin, that might be dishonoring to Christ. Never thought that. Why? Because all the priorities are messed up. You're focused so much on your own performance in your religion that you think somehow that's going to help you in the end. And outside of that, there's really no hope. So you just kind of give up. But see, this is what verse 6 says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. See, once you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit enables you, He gifts you with certain abilities and certain giftings to be used for His glory and to bear fruit within His church. There's not a believer here this morning that doesn't have a gift from God, some spiritual gift that he's given you. You say, well, I don't know what it is. Well, you better figure it out. There's ways we can help you. There's spiritual gift assessments that point you in a certain direction. But see, it's, it's not good enough to just sit there and say, well, I don't know what my spiritual gift is, so I guess I can't use it. No. <laughs> That's not going to get a, a pass grade when you, you, you meet the Lord one day. You know, he's going to say, hey, I gifted you in a myriad of ways. Why wouldn't you use that to bless the church that I cherish so much? And I'm not just talking about just, you know, kind of rallying people to get involved in the church. That's what I'm talking about. Because anybody can do that. I'm talking about genuine believers who have a heartfelt need to serve the body of Christ. Not because the pastor makes them feel guilty or the elder asks them or somebody else asks them to do it and they feel obligated If you're sitting here today as a Christian and you're not serving somewhere, there's a problem. There's a serious problem. Because we're not called to be saved and sit. That's not what the Word of God says. It says, you know what? You're you're, you're called, you're saved to serve. And if you're not serving as a believer, you're not going to see fruit. And there's, there's an issue there. You have to really sincerely pray about that. We're slaves of righteousness, but we serve Christ with the freedom to come together as the body of Christ and to serve him with the gifts that he's given us. What a glorious thing. We don't have to do this. We want to do it. We desire to serve Christ. We desire to serve others. I mean, trust me, I have a lot better things to do on a Sunday afternoon than go over to, you know, a convalescent home and meet with some old folks. 
I mean, that, that's not something that, boy, I can't wait. Oh, man, I just, no. But you know what? Why do I do it? Because the Spirit of God has enabled me to do it, and he's opened up an opportunity, and you know what? I love to do it. Because you're, you're making an impact on people's lives that otherwise would go untouched, that would go unseen. I don't have a bondage that, oh, man, i got to do this thing. And, uh, if that's my attitude, more than not, I just simply won't do it because there's something wrong. In closing, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, you are either a Christian or not a Christian. You cannot be partially Christian. You're either dead or alive. You're either born or you're not born. Becoming a Christian is not a gradual process. There is nothing intermediate about it. We either are or we are not Christian. And just remember, as we close, if you're not a Christian, you're under the condemnation of the law. But if you put your faith, your trust in Christ and his work, who bore the curse of the law for us, miraculously you're released from that. And you're joined to a loving husband, Christ, that can bear fruit for God for all eternity. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this church that you've called us to serve in. Lord, I pray that we would do it with willing, eager hearts. Lord, I know that at times we may feel pressured to do certain things. And Lord, that's no reason to do them. But at the same time, there's always things that need to be done. And what a glorious place this would be if we didn't have to wait till the pressure came until some of those things got done. Some of those holes got filled. But Lord, that we were made up of a body of believers that are eager, that are wringing our hands to say, where can we serve our glorious Savior? Where can we serve the church? Where can we serve the people of Christ? How do you want to use me, God? What are my gifts? What are my abilities? How can I use them for your glory? Lord, if there's someone here today who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, maybe they're trusting in their keeping rules or regulations or religion, whatever it might be, I pray that they would understand that there's no hope in that. There's only death, condemnation. But Lord, our hope comes through the work of Christ. And even like the man in the New Testament who cried out, beat his chest and cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all that's needed. It's that cry for help. That yearning to be saved by a glorious God who loves you so much that he gave his own son. He'll do the work. He'll do the changing. You just cry out to him for help. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.